whatever you can do, whatever your form of activism is, is valuable and is needed. What's at stake when the coverage of environmental issues leave out their impacts on the people that they affect? What is the role of an artist in supporting sustainability and the regeneration of a thriving planet? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. To sign up for Green Dreamer's newsletter, which includes weekly episode highlights, positive news to note, and a preview of who you'll hear from next, just head to greendreamer.com. I write these myself, and I really enjoy writing them, so I look forward to connecting with you there. Again, that's greendreamer.com to sign up. For now, to our episode. Let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is a first-generation Salvadoran-American artist, photographer, and writer behind his media platform, Brown Environmentalist, also known as Bean Media. He's worked through different capacities in the environmental justice movement, from habitat restoration to experiential education. And the common denominator tying all of his work together is really his creative focus around the experience of being brown in all of its multitudes and complexity, and also his mission to amplify the voices of Black, Indigenous, and people of color using tools that historically and still quite presently, were only limited to the few and privileged. Green Dreamer starting off with what inspired his passion for nature. Here's Michael A. Estrada. Concretely speaking, it started when I was doing habitat restoration. I was working in San Francisco and working in the national parks, Golden Gate National Parks, doing different habitat restoration in different sites. But I think Technically speaking, I would say that it's kind of been embedded in my life just because of the way I was raised and small things like turning the lights off or conserving water or making sure that I wasn't being wasteful, just generally speaking with food. Those are things that were always taught to me as I was growing up, but I just never considered it as a sustainable thing. Mm -hmm. And that framework didn't really come into play until, yeah, I was doing that habitat restoration work. And that was only about five, six years ago. And what was it that led you to see that we needed to consciously restore our landscapes and ecosystems? At the time when I first got that position, I myself was going through a lot of a lot of different turmoil and a lot of it was family stuff that would have been happening for the past two or three years. And I think I saw my own experiences paralleling that of like the planets. So I think when I was I was called to that position like habitat restoration or ecological restoration because of that term restoration and seeing what the planet was going through and seeing what my own family had gone through throughout history. And presently at that time, I felt like giving back to the earth would in some way find healing for myself as well, if that Mm. makes sense. So it's kind of connecting the dots to see how environmental restoration is connected to personal restoration. Totally. Yeah. And then what did your path look like that led you to bring in photography, the arts and writing into this work? I'd say it began like way back when I was a kid and I would actually make stop motion videos with Legos, (laughs) which is something that I always forget. When I was little, that was my passion. That was what I loved to do was just making movies, writing stuff. And I wanted to be a filmmaker. And somewhere along those lines from elementary school to like 
going to college, a lot of that was lost. And I think it's just because the realities of seeking success in a very prescribed way Mm. and seeing creative pursuits as not a successful or even a stable thing was really difficult to to push forward in a family, in my family especially, because both of my parents are immigrants, I'm first generation uh, student, first generation go to college. So it's hard to, to pursue something that looks so unstable from the outside. And I think the path that I ended up taking, which was focusing on doing education, doing restoration, and building up that knowledge, that base, is actually what kind of enabled me to go into photography when I felt I was ready, which has been like the past few years. Since I started doing restoration and since I was an educator and now doing photography and writing full time, throughout that time, I was always focusing on it in some way, whether it was just taking a camera out while I was leading students on a hike or creating curriculum that use these skills and like build it up just practice them. And then, yeah. Well, so with writing, I feel like it's a lot more straightforward for most people in terms of how the written word or the spoken word can support sustainability. But what do you think is the role of an artist or a photographer in environmental activism? Two things. One, when people ask me this, I always think of that quote where I'm going to probably botch it a little bit, but the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. That's one thing I always think about. And then secondly, as an artist, and especially especially as an artist of color, I think our role is, is very unique and very powerful because if we are an artist and we are creating stuff, we have this power to influence the way people see us and the way we see ourselves. And especially with like media and photography, something so visual, I think our society is becoming more and more visual. And I grew up very visual, like everything that I saw as a kid, I absorbed and it affected me in some way. I can like trace different things that I saw as a kid and how it affected me throughout my life. So as an artist, we carry that responsibility, but also the opportunity to really influence how people are seeing things, like how we're seeing nature, how we're seeing our connection to nature, how we're seeing ourselves in that role with nature. So it's really exciting. It's also a lot of responsibility to feel like, oh, like, what I create is going to influence how people see things. <laughs> but if we see it as just an opportunity to add to that conversation, in a lot of ways, artists of color, like we have such a fantastic opportunity to influence all of society because so much of art and so much of media hasn't been in our control. And with social media and with being able to put our work out there more, we have such a bigger voice now. Today, with your creative work, you focus a lot on the experience of being brown and all of its multitudes and complexity and dismantling narratives and collective imaginations that inflict harm to the identity of brown and indigenous people. What personal experiences led you to solidify this specific focus and mission? That specific thought started when I was in my second year as an educator. So I was doing environmental education and I was working primarily with students of color. And in my second year, I started this after-school program that kind of supplemented one of our ongoing high school programs. But in this program, I could kind of tailor the curriculum and kind of experiment with what we were teaching. And most of it was like, we would go outside, we'd do camping trips, we'd do something extra that supplemented their like high school curriculum. But beforehand, before every hike or before every trip, I would kind of have this theme. And in this particular day, we announced it. We're like, oh, we're going to go on this waterfall hike. And kids were super excited. These are all high school students, by the way. They were super excited, but they came in and I was like, boom, PowerPoint. And I started off with this PowerPoint. (laughs) Total experiment. I just wanted to see what would come of it. And the PowerPoint, the focus of it was, it was just super basic. It just said, what does an environmentalist look like? Or who does an environmentalist look like? 
And essentially, I would show different images of different people, mostly famous people. And I would say, does this person look like an environmentalist? And then we would kind of dig into why or why not. The point of the exercise was to really think or really to see what my students would say and what they had in their head of who an environmentalist, who is someone that cares for the planet and what they look like. What's that image? And it was really interesting to see why they thought someone was environmentalist and just that context of like the white American hippie and like the Western side of it. That was like a recurring theme. When I brought up folks who could be considered environmentalists or who are environmentalists who are brown or black, most of the folks that I showed were famous, but if they didn't know them personally, a lot of them would be like, if you were white, that was almost enough in some cases. Mm. And then the final image that I showed in that PowerPoint was an image of myself in high school. And this is the part that like really got it for me was that because <laughs> they knew me at that time. right? It's like they knew that I was, you know, I cared about the environment. I had all these things in my head because I was teaching it and I was like super passionate about it. But the final image was one of me in high school with my friend, with my best friend. They all started laughing. It was just like me wearing a hoodie and like I had like diamond earring things, you know. And I was like, all right, I know you know me now, but do I look like an environmentalist in this photo? And they're like, no, like, not really. Like, no. And I was like, okay, why? And then one of the students in the back was just like, you look too ghetto. <laughs> and I, everybody started cracking up, obviously, right? And I started laughing too. And some of the other educators were like, damn, like they got you. <laughs> you know? But that was, that was super influential for me because it's like, I didn't want my students to think of these things that were so relevant to their communities and so relevant to their lives. And I didn't want to put those limits. I wanted to like dismantle those limits, those imaginary limits that we put on ourselves. And a lot of it comes from the media and what the media represents us as. A lot of times, like the media represents us as like the ghetto is just this one thing or the environment is just this one thing, like in this channel over here. And these are separate worlds. And a lot of this dismantling collective imagination, like when I say that, it's really like going after those images that we have in our heads, like our possibilities, our limits, and just getting rid of that, showing that. You could be this like, quote unquote, ghetto, and you could still actually be an environmentalist. And in some cases, more an environmentalist than a lot of folks who you would think would be or like who work in these organizations, just because we deal with a lot of these issues more often. So in my work now, like a lot of it's influenced from just that one experience. It's mm -hmm. like I want to take away those those imagination. And that sounds super abstract, right? It's like these imaginations. What I mean by that is just like when we think of something, what do we imagine? But I don't want kids who are growing up to be like, oh, I can't be that because the media hasn't shown me that it's possible or the media has only shown it this way. And the context of the environment is so important because these issues aren't affecting white folks predominantly, right? They're affecting Black, Indigenous, and people of color, especially. So for me, it's like we need to reclaim our relationship with the environment and show that we are the leaders of this, of this movement. I mean, it makes all the difference in how we see ourselves in nature, how we act, and that, yeah, you can dress however you like, you can be however you like, and you can care for the planet. There's no one prescribed way. And in what ways do you think these dominant stories may have been harmful towards Black, Indigenous, and people of color, other than just a, maybe preventing full participation and engagement? Going back to college, I remember when I was learning about environmental studies or environmental science, the dominant narrative always talks about the environment as this isolated thing, which is kind of ironic when you think about it. But it always talks about like pollution and how it affects the environment or like how it affects a river or how it affects the atmosphere or something very specific, but only as it relates to the environment. But it's done as a dominant narrative of like, we only see the environment as these things, is that it's left out how it's impacted people. And I think any environmental organization that doesn't whatever it is, be it plastic, be it 
erosion or restoration, if it doesn't encompass that aspect of people, then it's really missing out on a lot because one, you're, you're taking environment out of context, which sounds really weird because it's like environment is like the whole context in my head. It involves everything, right? But when we approach environment just on the environmental point and don't include the actual social impact of it, you're leaving out the context of what it means to be outside as as different people, like what are those histories and what are the, the actual context of being outside as a person of color? If you're black, if you're indigenous, like if you're outside or if you're spending time in the environment as a person of color, there's likely a lot of painful history that is there that isn't being acknowledged. So with these dominant narratives, I just want to approach the environment as this just this one thing that doesn't that exists in a vacuum. That's really harmful because it's it start it starts adding to the erasure of the history of people of color. So the history of indigenous people, the history of black people. And that's just talking about the United States. But we can't properly heal alongside the planet without taking into context the full history of where we are right now. Because yes, it's painful, but in that pain, like there's also a lot of healing that that needs to be done. And as long as we approach it from this narrative of we're just moving forward and it's just about the environment, it doesn't allow us to really dig deep, make this movement more sustainable, like internally and externally. When there is one or a few dominant and disproportionate portrayals of what eco-activism or environmentalism looks like, what's the big deal there? So how do you think this may be impacting or slowing down our progress for sustainability? The danger of any very narrow narrative, so like a single narrative or just a couple narratives, is damaging because it doesn't allow us to imagine what different possibilities could look like. And if we only approach activism in one single way, then people who might be interested in also doing that, they might be like, oh, but I can't do that for whatever reason. And the more narratives, the more stories we have that are being told and actually heard that are being amplified and significantly like spread out through society, the more people see, oh, hey, like, that person's kind of like me and actually the way they're approaching it is something that I could do. And that's something that I feel comfortable doing or it's within my limits. But sometimes you hear of activist stories. You're like, wow, like that sounds really great and super inspiring, but I can't do that. Like, for example, like I can't go live in a tree. Like I can't just like drop all of the stuff that I have to do or the responsibilities that I have at home. That might be one person's form of activism and that's great. But we need to also have the stories that are urban, like we live in an urban environment. We live in an, or at least I do, um, but like I live in a city and there's a lot of activism and there's a lot of work that can be done here that directly translates to the environment and to nature. And having those stories exist and that multitude exist really brings people into the conversation rather than excludes. And I think the more we can, again, bring that inclusivity into the conversation and make people feel like whatever you can do, whatever your form of activism is, is valuable and is needed. I think that when there is such a dominant narrative around what sustainable living and environmental activism looks like, sometimes people can be afraid to voice their own opinions in fear of being judged or being viewed as not not a good environmentalist. So, for example, somebody who may not be vegan, somebody who may not be zero waste, uh, somebody who may not have like a super minimalistic home, which I feel like has been a lot of what social media has been pushing as what sustainability looks like. I feel like people can feel afraid to call themselves an environmentalist because that dominant vision is so persistent. 
Right. Yeah. And that's that's one of the harms of social media, right? It's like what gets more the most popular sometimes can also be harmful. So what what gives you the courage to personally come out and say, this is my perspective, this is me, this is what I do. And also you're helping to elevate the voices of other people who may not perfectly align with what the conventional view of what an environmentalist may look like. I don't know what it was, but my whole life, I've never been good with following rules and like staying within limits. I've always just been like, no, like that exists and I don't want it to be that way. Mm. Um, so a lot of it is that I remember like being in school and being like, that doesn't make sense. Or like, I'm really tired of hearing from all dead white men that that's boring, you know? So for me, a lot of it comes from that. It's just like, I see that there's a way that it's been done. And then I see that how like flawed that is. And I want to change it in terms of like bringing other other folks into the conversation. And a lot of my work is that it's like naming that named or folks who are already doing awesome work and have been doing awesome work. And that's kind of like what I find my passion in is finding those stories and then just elevating them and amplifying them. And what's been your biggest roadblock in trying to elevate the stories and voices of more people of color in environmentalism? I think capital, like money and time, more and more that the discussion and the narrative is shifting like this money is starting to become more available by from folks who have it people are seeing the need of it and that's important and i think a lot of times like if i can't do something it's because i don't have capital like i don't have there's nowhere like in the in the background where i could be like yo can i have some money Mm. so i make this story happen so a lot of times like when i am making stuff i have to just spend my time doing it and i hope that in the future something will come of it And then the second part is also the fact that like so much of our energy goes into fighting the ideas and the visions of others, right? Like a lot of time we're just like rallying against things that have been set in place and that people a long time ago were like, this is the way we want society to work. And these are the systems like racist systems that we want the world to look like. And that can be really exhausting. So I would see that as a big challenge, too. It's like we don't often get the chance to just create and to think and to imagine in our own vision and whatever that could be. Yeah. Activism can be very emotionally draining and tiring, which depletes us of our creative juices to be able to help us move forward in more innovative ways. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, the financial piece, I feel like that is also very systemic because... Yeah. (laughs) So how do we work with this going forward? Because in elevating the voices of people who are less privileged, we also need financial resources to be able to support that. Obviously, there's no straight answer to this, but what ideas have you thought about on this front? One way that I thought of approaching this, and I think it's the most radical way of approaching it is, so like imagine like the Oscars, right? And there's always like a lot of talk of like representation in the Oscars and the hashtag Oscar so white, et cetera. Part of that is because when we're still working in this system, those financial things, like they're a problem because that's the system that we've created. So what if like in different organizations or in general, we just completely like got rid of that organization, right? Like what if we completely like dismantled the way that, for example, like the Oscars, what if we like got rid of the Oscars and then we rebuilt it with the diversity, with the voices, with the inclusivity in this hypothetical world, right? This new Oscars would have just the same prestige but it would be embedded with these new philosophies and these new ideals and with new people and new voices. So many organizations have so much money and so much power that if more of them were just like, you know, we've had a good run, 
But what if we start doing the process of like whatever community we're in, we're going to bring in those voices, we're going to like embed them into the actual leadership, people step down from their jobs, people take pay cuts and, you know, start really like radically changing the way something looks like and bringing people in, not just as an internship or just bringing people in at the bottom of the ring, but taking apart the organization and rebuilding it in a new light. I think that would be something that, I mean, it'd be incredible to see something like a foundation that has a lot of money to work with a community and work with the community that they're in, that the land that they're on and with the native folks of, of the land that they are on and envision like, all right, we've been doing this, but we can't just be like white folks telling people and like giving out money. Like, what if we reconstruct it and rebuild it with all of these voices that yeah, the country now reflects. We have ways to go, but we're all going yeah. to work hard on this. And I know that right. uh, to help support this, you also recently started providing micro grants with Bean Media. Can you tell us a bit more about this and what this entails? I always kind of envisioned doing this when I was like, if I had like tons of money, which I don't. Um, but <laughs> back in January, I launched Bin Rising Grant. And the focus of that was really just to like, again, talking about that flow of capital and trying to help artists like myself who just need like a little bit of cash to maybe help them on something small. So it's a micro grant. So the award is up to $200. Most of the folks have started reading through the applications and most of the folks have applied for the $200. And it's been incredible because you see I'm one small platform, like that's something super big. And I received like almost 100 applications wow. just for this $200 grant. So and it's incredible to be reading through the applications and seeing the need even for something like $200. And for me, it's been really inspiring and also heartbreaking to read and to see it because people could really use even $200. <laughs> Some folks are asking for like materials to like print their art. Some folks are asking for like an Adobe subscription. Some people are asking for a mic. My intention with that was to give back in some way. And when I first was thinking of doing it, I was like, maybe like I wanted to make it more, but I was like, I just can't do more. So I was like, I'm just going to do $200. Hopefully it'll work and hopefully like that's something that people will find valuable. And it's amazing that $200 goes a long way and people are excited about the opportunity. And it's something that's also easily replicable. Like imagine if artists who are famous had something similar. Um, I don't know. It's just about, yeah, for me, it's like working in that collective and working in that community element of like, if I'm rising, like I want other people to rise with me. And the grant speaks to that. That's beautiful. Well, we really thank you for the important work that you do. And of course, want to also join and contribute our voices in a positive way. So as purpose-driven creative storytellers and aspiring change makers ourselves, what final tips can you leave with us that can help us to also honor the diversity there is within sustainability within our own work, whether in our messaging, in our language, in our art, etc.? I would say take the time to do... To the self-learning and the self-healing work. I think that's that's super important. Like who I grew up and the things that I grew up with and where I am now, like a lot of that was just self-healing and self-work and self-learning that happens on your own time. Taking those moments for yourself to like reflect and read and go on a walk or do something similar that gives you that space to breathe and reflect on what's happening. That's something that I think is really valuable. And then of course, like when we are approaching new voices and new people just taking the time to like listen and like value their experience fully one thing that i've that i've started saying um to myself anyway when it gets too much externally go within when it gets too much within look externally and when both are too much go to sleep (laughs) 
And that's just like a way of making sure you have that balance of like the stuff that you're receiving. Like sometimes like it really helps for me to just like go online and look at what other people are creating and just like forget about what whatever I had in my head. And then sometimes it's like looking at what other people creating isn't really helping myself. So like I turn off social media. I actually like don't have social media notifications. That's actually one tip I would give people. Turning it off or like being able to log out and then reflecting on your own and just being able to see like what comes up for you. And then if both are too much, I found just like either closing my eyes, like throwing myself up to my bed (laughs) or going to sleep. Sometimes you need to just like shut things out and let your mind just like wander off. Well, we look forward to continually learning more from you. So what is next for you and where can we follow your work online? At Brown Environmentalist on Instagram. That's the best way um, to follow my work. I have a few articles that are coming up in the next few months. I usually don't announce stuff until it happens. So all of it will eventually come through the Instagram. Um, you can also follow bin.media. That's B-E-E-N.media. And that's the website for it. And that will be a place where I'm striving to like update more and put a lot of the work on there. Something big is coming in the next month, in which case, if you follow me, like I'll post it on there. <laughs> um, I'm sad that like I don't know yet, so I can't speak to it. Stay tuned on the grant or reiterations of the grant, because I like, plan to keep, to keep that going in some way. Well, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for being here and for your continued dedication to being a positive force in this world. If you've been finding Green Dreamer helpful or inspiring in any way and would like to become one of our original Green Dreamer patrons, just head to greendreamer.com support. By doing so, you'll also get more from us, including bonus monthly Q&A episodes and access to our private Green Dreamer network, which is an inclusive digital sanctuary for meaningful connections with like-minded Green Dreamers, collaboration opportunities, and the exchange of ideas and inspirations. We're just getting started on this and would love to have you. So again, that's greendreamer.com support to join our network and become an official Green Dreamer patron. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow? So I'll name three things. Um, One is completely irrelevant to most of the stuff I just talked about, (laughs) but it's called Stack Magazines. They're actually British, but if you get over that part, um, they they essentially like review a magazine every week or so. And they have a subscription that if you signed up, they send out magazines to you or one different magazine every month, I think. But anyway, I like to go on there because... It's such a great review of like different creative processes that are out there. One thing that is more relevant is uh, Queer Nature, and it's the same on Instagram, so at Queer Nature. And they lead survival skills for QT uh, BIPOC in the outside, essentially. Um, I would highly recommend following them. They're very radical and very um, inspiring to me and my work that I'm doing. And they're also friends. So shout out to Pinar and So. And um, one last thing is Soul Fire Farm. They're also on social media, and I would highly encourage going on their website and seeing the opportunities that they have. They also have been really inspiring in my work of just like seeing folks who are on the other. So I'm on the West Coast, so folks who are on the East Coast doing super inspiring work. Yes. We're actually going to have Leah Pennyman, the founder, on the podcast soon. So our Green Dreamer can stay tuned for that. Yeah. Yeah. I've been reading through the book, and it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Besides that quote that I told you earlier, it's remembering that it's not all up to me. So it's like removing that ego element of it. And a lot of this comes from reading Adrian Marie Brown. And in their book, they talk a lot about decentralization 
like that's very healing and inspiring for me as I do this work to not get exhausted, to remember that there are other people who are doing this work. And if you need to take a break, you take that break and you sit and you step back because the more these movements have multiple leaders and multiple voices, the more sustainable this movement is. So yeah, so for me, like the way I stay inspired is just remembering like if I need to take that break, you know, there's other folks who are doing the work and I can trust, yeah, that there's a greater community at, at play. And on a similar note, what's one thing you're working on right now for your health? My whole life is usually revolved around staying active in some way. Um, I grew up playing soccer and that was my first solid connection to to being outside all the time. So for the more busy I get essentially now, it's the harder it is to stay active and find time. So I try to go on my bike a couple of times a week um, outside of commuting, that is, and then climbing and um, running. Yeah. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? So many things. <laughs> right now, I'm going to say uh, the waste I'm producing because it gets so much harder when, especially with like freelancing and moving around so much, maintaining that focus when I'm like traveling or when I'm moving around and it's like, I'm hungry and like, I want to get something. And yeah, so I would say like trying to live less impactful, especially when I'm doing something that's super impactful, like traveling. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? My community, I would say. I think since becoming more involved as a creative in this community, it's opened up a lot of stories and a lot of lives to me, like because a lot of my work is telling people stories. And when I hear different work that people have doing for years or that they just started, that's where my hope comes from. There are so many people who are doing this or so many people who are actively doing the work every single day. And that makes me hopeful. Like if we all are, if we all are operating on this mindset, real change can happen. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? I would just say you're not alone. And yeah, you can always tap in, tap out and take care of yourself and take care of other people. Know that you're not alone, and you can always tap in and tap out, depending on what you need most to support your holistic well-being. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. I want to take a quick moment to thank our new patrons, Carissa Smith and Alexandrina GV. Thank you, thank you so much for your support helping to make our work possible. As always, you can find our show notes at greendreamer.com slash 123 for episode 123. Become one of our official Green Dreamer patrons by going to greendreamer.com support. Reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane, as well as on our podcast account at Green Dreamer Podcast. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer. <laughs>